National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Are words violence? And how can we support a culture of free speech? We'll discuss all this and more on the special sponsored edition of The Editors. Our regularly scheduled programming will return with our next episode. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined today by Nick Perino, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast, and our sponsor is the aforementioned FIRE, the organization devoted to a full-spectrum defense of free speech and free expression. It can be found at the Fire. .org. That's thefire.org. So, Nico, thanks so much for joining us. Rich, thanks for having me on the show. I should say my wife is a big fan. The other night I, awesome. was, I was preparing for our conversation. I had my laptop open on my uh, recliner, and she told me it's time to close up work and come up to bed. And I told her that I was preparing for your show, and she said, take all the time you need. So <laughs> happy to be here. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. So just just tell us, uh, most of us in the know, we we know about FIRE and have for a very long time and admired its work. But for, for people who might not, tell us a little bit about what FIRE is. Yeah, well, for 20, what, four years or so, we saw ourselves as the premier defender of civil liberties on campus, not just free speech, which has kind of become our bread and butter and what we're most known for, but also religious liberty, freedom of press, freedom of association, due process. We were very involved in the Title IX debate, especially around the Trump administration's reforming the Title IX policies in order to protect more due process rights for students accused of sexual misconduct on campus. But as some of your listeners might know, we did expand off campus, at least our free speech mission, back this summer on June 6th, I think was the date. And so since then, we've been doing a lot of capacity building and getting involved in all the free speech food fights that happen off campus. You know, Elon Musk and, and Twitter, some of the big tech conversations surrounding content moderation and censorship. And it's been, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, we're doing a lot of hiring, doing a lot of fundraising. Uh, and hoping to build sort of a free speech army so that when there are calls for censorship across America, uh, we can rally that army to come to the defense of uh, free expression principles. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. So so what accounts for that? I, I would say from from a distance, there there at least be two things. One, that this deeply illiberal culture on campus a while ago jumped the uh, ivy covered campus walls to infect yeah. the, the the political and, and business and really elite culture, not even elite culture, the the entire culture as a general matter. And two, the ACLU has uh, in, in important respects seemed to kind of uh, fold up its its flag in terms of of being a robust defender of free speech on uh 
uh, across the spectrum? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll take those as it's a two-parted question. So I'll take the first one first, which is, yeah, there's been a decline in the culture for free expression in America. And it certainly started on campus. I remember I was at the 92nd Street Y, which is a big kind of speaking theater in uh, New York City must have been like 2015 or 2016. And my president, uh, the, well, the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, where I work, Greg Lukianoff, he had just co-written a book with Jonathan Haidt, an NYU professor called The Coddling of the American Mind. And they were sitting on stage at the 92nd Street Y. And Greg said, what's happening on campus now will not stay on campus. And he recommended mm -hmm. at that time that people buy stock in HR companies because some of the illiberal trends that we had seen on campus, microaggression policing, trigger warnings, campus disinvitations, equating words with violence, which I hope we can get into, that was going to start entering your corporations and your HR departments were going to become overwhelmed with the sort of culture that we had seen on campus now mm -hmm. filtering in to the business community. Mm -hmm. And you know, for us, people often say, well, what does free speech culture mean? I mean for us, it's a, a culture that sees value and curiosity, dissent, devil's advocacy, thought experimentation, talking across lines of difference. It's a, a culture where your first instinct in response to speech you don't yeah. like isn't to find a way to censor it or to cancel the speech or to you know, talk about cancel culture, but to meet that speech with more speech. You know, the idea that we can't reap, you know, we can't reap the benefits of a First Amendment protection for free speech unless we have a culture where citizens feel free to use those rights. So that's one of the things with our expansion that we're trying to inculcate and is what sort of separates us from other organizations like the ACLU that works in this space is that we advocate for the First Amendment and we advocate for a culture of free speech, advocating for the First Amendment, you know, ad defending speech because it's protected by the First Amendment is a circular argument, right? Why do we have the First Amendment in the first place? Why is it important? And those are the arguments that we seek to make in the court of public opinion. On the ACLU front, I mean, the ACLU has 19 different issue areas. Uh, we mm -hmm. have one off campus. We have freedom of speech. And last year when Michael Powell over at the New York Times uh, wrote an article about the ACLU and some of the tensions between free speech and its other issues, uh, the, the leading lawyer at the ACLU who works on the free speech stuff said, yeah, fire's not going to have those same tensions, uh, because it only has this, this one mm -hmm. issue area. We work with the ACLU where we can, uh, you know, we're working with them on this challenge to the stop woke act in Florida, uh, as it applies to higher education. Um, and I've actually made a documentary about former ACLU executive director, Ira Glasser. <laughs> I was actually mm -hmm. in your offices in Manhattan, mm -hmm. Rich, interviewing Jay yep. Nordlinger to kind of explore Ira's uh, unique friendship with William F. Buckley Jr. And how Ira once took him to a baseball game. Uh, they were close friends. Ira visited him two weeks before he passed away. And Ira talks repeatedly about how he misses, uh, William mm -hmm. F. Buckley. And, um, you know, that's, that's the sort of kind of talking across lines of difference that a culture of free speech would encourage, but I fear is lost from national discourse. Now, I mean, you hear about friendships like um, Antonin Scalia's friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, but those become notable because they're so uh, rare. Uh, and that's a yeah. problem for a culture of free expression, in my opinion. Yeah. So at least the, the apocryphal story is that Ira Glasser invited Bill Buckley to a baseball game and Bill said, uh, no, thanks. I've already seen one. But uh, <laughs> I, I, Ira I, will he, say he hadn't, but. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I do think he managed to, to get him to uh, a, a baseball game uh, occasionally over the years. And I remember there, there was one 
towards the end of, of Bill's life when, when he came back from, I think it was still Shea Stadium then, just just marveling that he went out to buy a beer from the concession stand and the guy carted him, you know, <laughs> he's like 80, 80 years old at that point. But yeah, you're right. This, you know, Bill was a, a genius at this uh, friendships across party and, and ideological lines. And Ira Glasser was a regular guest around his dinner table and there'd be robust debate, but, you know, civil and, and friendly and, and respectful debate, obviously. So listeners of this podcast know, uh, or at least they, they should, about the distinction between, you know, a, a free speech is a legal matter and free speech is a cultural matter. But dive into that a, a little bit more, because um, obviously we're going to get into to Twitter inevitably since it's such a big free speech oriented story at the moment. But, you know, Twitter is a private company. You can do whatever it's, it wants, but you would hope its decisions would be informed by a, a culture of free speech, even if they don't have to be informed strictly by the First Amendment. Yeah, well, there, there are going to be tensions between free expression and free association when you're talking about private companies. But what's important from our perspective is what those private associations say about themselves, what values they commit to uh, in public. So for Twitter, you know, for example, you have Elon Musk saying that it is you know, akin to the town square of the internet. Uh, so we hold Twitter to those values. This is a place that shapes the national conversation. And to the extent it's manipulating that national conversation through the censorship of, of, of certain viewpoints, uh, we think that's a problem for the culture of free speech. Would we say the same thing about Christian Mingle deplatforming an atheist who wanted to join its dating app? Uh, no, we wouldn't. Um, but in a, in a culture where, in, in a corporate culture such as Twitter's where you're trying to encourage that sort of debate, we think it's hypocritical then to arbitrarily censor based on, on viewpoint. So, you know, it, it's, are there going to be bright lines when assessing a culture of free speech? No, but in our, in our, you know, estimation, it's a problem when Dave Chappelle, the most famous comedian in America puts together a special for Netflix it's one of the most popular specials. I think actually Netflix said it was the most popular special, comedy special it ever put out. And then there's a whole campaign mm -hmm. uh, with hashtag cancel Chappelle. And so this is happening, of course, as we're preparing to launch our expansion. And we're thinking to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if there was a national organization with a significant following that could rally free speech supporters to say, or to backstop Netflix. So they hear a perspective from the other side. They say, no, in America, where we tolerate different points of view, where we care about different perspectives, where we support artistic ex expression, we don't de-platform that expression because a certain subset of America finds it offensive. So that's what we were, we're hoping to do with our expansion is give air cover to people like yeah. Ted Sarandos over at Netflix, a co-CEO over at Netflix, when there are demands for censorship to not have to cave to those demands. Yeah, so you've seen this weird separation, right, where as a formal matter, the First Amendment, at least when it comes to the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, might be as, you know, as, in as robust shape as it's ever been. At the same time, this culture of free speech is, is slip sliding uh, in the wrong direction. And, you know, that's a big problem because even if you have the formal right and the freedom, and there's no question of, of that, if you're going to get into the courts over it and have a, a formal legal dispute, people, less lesser people than Dave Chappelle have to be worried and have to be scared and have to engage in self-censorship. Yeah. I mean, so let's take Yale, for example, which has been in the free speech headlines for 
what, seven years now, since, ever since Nick, Nicholas Christakis uh, faced his situation during the Halloween controversy of 2015. That was a key inflection point, I think, in American national life, that incident. Oh, of course. Well, we actually target the kind of changing tenor on campus to, what was it, late 2013, where Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner of the NYPD, was shouted down at Brown. That was the Mm -hmm. first kind of real incident where you started seeing significant shout downs on campus, the inability to have conversations across line of difference, the inability even to like just hear different perspectives out, uh, not to mention conversations across line of difference. But yes, it it ratcheted up uh, significantly in 2015 surrounding the Nicholas Christakis incident at Silliman College at Yale. But Yale promises students and faculty the right, and I'm quoting them here, the right to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable. What does that value mean if you go to Yale and nobody feels free to exercise it because the culture is one of conformity, right? Like it's just, it's a, it's a parchment barrier. It was a judge learned hand who said, uh, you know, around the time, the rise of fascism, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court, no campus policy can even do much to help it. So, you know, we're trying to support at a private school like Yale, it's strong commitments to free expression and its policies or at a public school that's bound by the First Amendment, uh, those principles uh, through the culture. Uh, John Stuart Mill, he wrote uh, the famous 1859 uh, treatise on free expression on liberty, probably the most famous treatise on free expression ever written. He didn't write it about the law. He wrote it about what he saw as the stultifying conformity of Victorian England. And uh, you know, I think in America, we lean too much on the First Amendment to defend free speech principles mm-hmm. because it is so robust and because you do have such strong recourse in the courts that we forget how to make the argument for the principles that animate the First Amendment in the first place. And so when you are seeing calls for microaggression policing or trigger warnings or disinvitations or you hear people say words are violence, uh, those of us who have an instinct to say, no, that's wrong, aren't equipped with the language to defend the values. And that's what we're trying to educate Americans about. So a, a key element of the culture of free speech eroding is this notion that you mentioned just a, a little bit ago, words as violence. So where where did that, do you know where that came from? I, I've never traced it back myself, but it sounds very much like something that was, you know, cooked up in a, a you know, women's studies department somewhere, you know, at Oberlin and everyone would have treated it as crazy, but then has, has conquered, uh, sw- swept all before it. Well, you're not actually that wrong. I mean, it was, it probably has a greater history than, um, what I'm about to articulate, but you know, the, the founders of critical race theory, people like Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, um, for example, Richard Delgado wrote a book, words that wound in the late eighties, early nineties, or he wrote a paper and then it was turned into a book. Um, that made this argument essentially that words can be wounding, but that's a that sort of conception of words is a significant threat to America, to a free society, and to a democracy. Because think about this: what is a democracy if not using our words to solve our problems? Um, you know, Sigmund Freud, for whatever you think of him, once said <laughs> um, that civilization was founded the day a man cast a word instead of a stone. You know, in a, mm-hmm. in a free society, in a democracy, in a, in a republic, we leave our guns at the door and we solve our problems with words. But if you're coming in and saying that no words are now violence, 
then that whole distinction goes out the window. And you then become justified to meet words with actual physical violence, which is which is a problem. You know, when yeah. so you're going to little you're going to chase Charles Murray down. If you can catch him, you know, he might get a good uh, a good beating. Well, or or Ann Coulter. So mm-hmm. there was a couple of weeks ago, Ann Coulter was set to speak at her alma mater, Cornell, and she was shouted down within six minutes. And to mm-hmm. Cornell's credit, uh, it had police on standby to escort these people out. But every time a heckler was escorted out, another one would stand up, just kind of waiting for the police to leave with the previous person to shout them down again. And that's no way to run an event, right? How, how long are you going to do that for? But the last one of the last hecklers to shout said, we don't want you to speak here. Your words are violence. It's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. This is what's mm-hmm. happening on college campuses repeatedly. They're, <laughs> they're weaponizing, so to speak, no pun intended, uh, the, the language of violence to censor speech. And there was one um, writer, I, I believe she wrote in The Atlantic, who said who tried to kind of make a trauma-informed argument for words being violence, the idea that some words can cause stress and prolonged stress can cause uh, pain and suffering and physical ailment. But like, if that's the case, then a disagreement with my wife that's prolonged and and stressful and and animated by words, it then becomes violence. And that's just silly. Right. So, I I mean, words, words are wounding. And I was going to say before you said it, anyone who's married knows this, right? (laughs) Anyone who's had a human, human relationship knows this. Uh, You know, it's why there are all sorts of biblical injunctions about, you know, being careful with your tongue, holding, holding your uh, your your yeah. tongue, but it's not literal. It's not a physical assault, and that's the distinction that's being lost. It's a distinction you have to have in a free society in order for it to work. Otherwise, you just devolve into your disputes being solved by by physical violence, and America can't work that way. So, and and also, I know you didn't mean it this way, but just to to um, develop it a, a little bit more, when you say you know words are how we solve our are problems, but they don't have to be directly related to solving problems. Actually, they can seem destructive, right? Or actually be destructive, but you you trust that the uh, destructive words and ideas will ultimately lose. And if you have a free and robust um, uh, discourse in your society, that people will uh, come around to the truth and to facts and to to rationality. But if you if you think if you um, take it upon yourself to squash what you think are the the self-destructive ideas or self-destructive speech, you actually m- might be uh, suppressing things that are true. And this will bring us bring us around to Twitter just but in you know my own career as as a conservative pundit, I've just learned that uh, people I think are crazy sometimes end up being right. And that's why I should have a certain amount of respect, even if I think they're crazy and uh, consider their ideas and freely debate them. I thought everyone who said uh, Iraq didn't have WMD were crazy. They ended up being right. You know, most of them right for the, the for wrong reasons, but still, these these this was an argument worth considering. And you can go, um, it, you can you can just find uh, you know dozens and dozens of examples of, of that. Kind no, of no, that's I mean that's that's a great point. I mentioned John Stuart Mill's 1859 on liberty earlier. Uh, he has what we call at fire Mill's trident, his three main arguments for why you need to have free expression. One is that you might be wrong, right? <laughs> it's important to hear those with who you disagree because they might be right. The other alternative is you might be right, but you get a greater conception of the truth by mm-hmm. arguing it out. Your mind's right. like a muscle. The more you argue your truth, uh, the stronger it becomes, the better you become at articulating it. Otherwise, it just becomes like a dead dogma. Right. 
But the third alternative is that you might be partially right and you'll get a greater conception uh, of the truth um, or your truth will become strengthened uh, by becoming more fully correct, meeting uh, ideas that uh, you hadn't considered before. But I also want to make this point um, because it's it's not just that things might be right, um, which is why you want to hear them. It's that you have a conception of the world that you wouldn't otherwise have. So I, I say censorship is like breaking the thermometer. Actually, Jonathan Rausch, uh, uh, who you might be familiar with, he's a public intellectual, said this first. He wrote a, the great book, Kindly Inquisitors. He, he, put, he made this analogy previously. He said, censorship is like breaking the thermometer, right? You might not know what the temperature is anymore, but it still remains there, right? And, mm-hmm. and our president, Greg Lukianoff, says uh, that he, he calls this a small T truth. It's important to know what people actually think, not just – uh, when they're wrong, but especially when they're wrong or especially when mm-hmm. they have something hateful to say, like you don't know what problems you have to solve in the society until you know those problems exist and censorship prevents you from knowing that those problems exist in the first place. I'm glad to know that Kanye West is an anti-Semite, right? Uh, like it's important to hear bigots speak their mind and because as our co-founder Harvey Silverglade said, he's a Jewish man. He said, I want to know who the Nazi is in the room. So I know not to turn my back to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so let's, let's go to Twitter. There's this, um, gentleman, I've never heard his name said, Yo, Yoel, maybe is how it's pronounced. Uh, yeah, it's Yo- Yoel Roth, I believe. Right. Yoel Roth. Yeah. So he was the former head of trust and safety at Twitter. And he's been doing uh, a number of interviews and I'm not sure whether he, literally believes that words are violence, but he, he's certainly adjacent to that point of view. And it seemed like, it seems like a big element of what's going on at, at Twitter is th- this, this kind of uh, skepticism of, of speech or worry about the physical consequences of, of speech was informing the folks who were um, s- sitting, sitting there deciding what could be said or what couldn't be said. And just, just his, his sheer title, I think he was head of trust and safety, Mm -hmm. um, is sets off alarm bells or should, you know, safety is one of these words that's been corrupted in, in recent years. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, safety used to mean, well, you don't turn over the lawnmower while it's running to see if there's something wrong with the blade, right? That's safety. (laughs) Yeah. Now, now safety is like, wow, you might be exposed to a New York post story. That's not entirely nailed down or, you know, might ultimately be Russian, uh, the source of it might be Russian disinformation and you're not, you can't handle this, right? This is going to harm you in some way. Or if, uh, you know, the Babylon Bee re- refers to a, a biological male who's transitioned as a biological male, that that's, that's harm and, and it has to yeah. be. Can I give you an ex- absurd example from campus? Yep. So at Brown, uh, Guy Benson you know, popular conservative commentator was set to speak there. And there was a petition on Brown's campus to have him disinvited. And this is, speaks to the concept of concept creep, right? The justification for disinviting him was that he is conservative and supports free markets and free markets and capitalism are a form of white supremacy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and white supremacy is a form of him. violence. They, they nailed him. Yeah, they nailed him, right? But that, that's the problem. Right. You open the door to this and everyone's going to try and find their trucks to drive right through the hole. So, you know, and, and that's what you're seeing with this kind of safety rationale. It's, tr- it's trauma-informed or safety-informed justifications for censorship. It's not really new, so to speak. Like I said, the CRT folks in the 80s and 90s were making the argument, but it certainly had a resurgence. Yeah. So 
What uh, so the the complaints about uh, Twitter now are, you know, e- Elon Musk is is taking off the, all the guardrails, which isn't it's not clear that really much has changed, <clears throat> right? But uh, the argument is that he's taking off the guardrails, so it's the the zone is going to be flooded at Twitter with racism, with anti-Semitism, and with all sorts of misinformation, and our our, our political do- discourse just can't can't handle this. And this, this will be a terrible thing that will distort our elections, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, the first thing I'd like to see is what Elon Musk said he wanted to do as kind of like job one when getting into Twitter, which is get rid of all the bots. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you saw the rise of hate, quote unquote, hate speech on the platform right after Elon Musk took over, uh, there were some organizations and, and Twitter itself who pinpointed that these voices were um, the, these tweets were coming from just a handful of accounts, uh, from a small number of accounts, uh, probably as some sort of like disinformation, uh, disinformation or hate amplification uh, campaign. So that's the sort of thing that led Musk to try his uh, short-lived blue verified approach, which had its own issues. But that that sort of like artificial amplification of, of voices poses a problem for a culture of free speech. Because if you support free speech, right, because you want to know the world as it is, if you want to understand those small t truths, having bots amplify certain voices over other ones manipulates the actual conversation and gives you a false impression of what's happening. So I'd love for Elon Musk to solve the bot problem first so we can really understand what the hate problem is in the first place and how widespread it actually is. But I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have sympathy for the folks who do the content moderation work on some of these platforms. Some of the speech and, and fire talks a lot about how, you know, the first amendment and its jurisprudence is kind of the longest sustained uh, meditation on how to have free speech in a free society. And one of the things that you, that, you know, is a bedrock principle that you fight against is viewpoint discrimination. But you know, to the extent that you need to make these social media platforms u- usable, some of the platforms engage in content discrimination, which isn't as troubling to a free speech advocate as viewpoint discrimination because it allows Twitter to do things like remove porn from the platform mm-hmm. or, uh, or um, beheading videos for example, uh, things that would just make the platform unusable. But to the extent they allow conversations around certain issues, and within that that those that conversation, they censor certain viewpoints on those issues, that's that's a problem, right? Like if you're, if you're talking about uh, trans rights in America right now, which is an important conversation, um, to, to censor people like Jordan Peterson, who has maybe a majority uh, viewpoint on that issue, or maybe a minority, you wouldn't know, um, because Twitter took his has suspended his account, which Elon Musk then later replatformed. So if you're going to allow conversations on issues happening at Twitter, you can't be you can't be viewpoint dis- uh, discriminating. That's the sort of thing that we at Fire look at uh, with a keen eye. And this these recent Twitter files that Matt Taibbi came out with, I, from my perspective, I didn't see anything really new there. Um, mm-hmm. We've known for a long time uh, that governments and campaigns have had sort of a backdoor access to these social media platforms. There was a conver- there was a story that happened last month or maybe two months ago um, about the Election Integrity Partnership, which was a partnership between the DHS and private organizations to police election misinformation. And they had a backdoor access that they could log in 
uh, and report content to to Facebook. But now people are seeing it on a higher scale because Elon Musk can amplify it beyond what um, you know just the news, which broke the election integrity partnership, yeah. could. So uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, it's we have rapid response meetings every morning at nine thirty here at Fire, and uh, Twitter is a recurrent topic of conversation. Yeah. I, I could use a little bit of a reprieve here heading into the holidays, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't think that'll come. Well, on the trans thing, that just seems such an obvious example of Twitter putting its thumb on the scale of one part of the debate and thinking, no, we're, we're just being uh, neutral and keeping people safe. Because, you know, there's a debate whether misgendering is a thing or even if it is a thing, how bad it is. Yeah. And and, you know, and they just came down. It's terrible. And you can't do it. But let's go to, you know, oftentimes where the most most interesting discussion is around the fringe cases. So you have Kanye and I've been embarrassed, Nico, ever since a couple episodes ago, I referred to him as Ye, which apparently it's yay. So I I didn't know that's how it's pronounced. But yay. Put a pronunciation pronunciation guide in his uh, Twitter (laughs) bio, right? So he's he's off Twitter after, you know, this mental breakdown and bout of anti-Semitism all mixed mixed together. Is that, uh, is that the correct call? You know, if you're Elon Musk, I, I, you know, you need advertisers to keep the whole thing going and no one wants to be up against his, his, uh, swastikas and whatnot. So is that a defensible call or would you think even that's a violation well, of a culture? Well, Elon Musk has incredible engineers. I mean, this is a guy who can send a rocket into space and then land it again. So I'm, I'm if the main concern was having advertiser content appear next to, uh, what was it? Yee? Yay? Yee? <laughs> yay. Con yay. So I think yay. it's yay. Yay's account. If the main concern <laughs> is having the content appear next to yay's account, uh, I'm sure there's some sort of code that you could write to prevent that sort of thing from happening. But, you know, he's still up on Instagram. If you go to Instagram, you can access Kanye's account. In fact, he just posted something really silly today, today or yesterday um, saying that uh, uh, Elon Musk is some sort of like Chinese uh, project. I, at least like part Chinese. It, it doesn't even make any sense. And I, mm-hmm. I sort of feel right. bad for Ye because I, I think he's going through something. Um, but allowing him to speak is what led to him getting hung on his own petard, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know something about Kanye West that we wouldn't have known had he not been on the, the platform and our perspective on him and his, you know, projects is shaped by that. It's again, it's knowing the small T truths, um, about the world that's important. So, you know, personally, um, I don't like the decision and you can see the control case over at Instagram, the world that, you know, he's still up there and the sky hasn't fallen, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. So, so, so you guys, you know, your, your, uh, mission is to defend free, free speech across the board, no matter who is, uh, uh, trampling on it. No, and with hands or butts, unapologetic. That's yeah, what we say. You've been, you've been true, true to this. Uh, you've challenged uh, successfully so far the Stop Woke Act in Florida, which is part of the uh, Ron DeSantis kind of culture war legislation. So why is that a, uh, a violation of, of free speech and, and uh, legitimately unconstitutional in your view? Yeah. Well, you know, back in April, a law went into effect in Florida called the Stop Woke Act. And let me say what this is not, first of all. A lot of people see that say, say that we're suing to stop the don't say gay bill or mm-hmm. the regulation of curricula in K through 12 education, which is, you know, K through 12 education, state mandated. Uh, governments have more authority over to controlling what happens in that environment than they do in higher education, where 
you have uh, core free speech protections, you're talking about adults attending, uh, and you're talking about academics who have academic freedom rights to kind of engage in the marketplace of ideas and explore different topics. Now, what the Stop Woke Act does, it says that there are eight topics that you can't explore. Um, you know, sort of the kind of critical race theory best hits. Uh, and you can't explore these topics even through Socratic discussion or devil's advocacy. Um, you know, they just can't be discussed. This is, as Fire President and CEO Greg Lukianoff said, one of the most serious threats, legislative threats, to free expression that he's ever seen in in his in his career. So, you know, we we sued to uh, stop it, and we recently got a stay from uh, the court down there in Florida, and the court ruled, and I'm quoting it here that. It was positively dystopian. Uh, it officially bans, I'm still quoting, officially bans professors from expressing disabled viewpoints in university classrooms while permitting unfettered expression of the opposite viewpoints. Uh, the, co the court, in its first line of the opinion, even quotes George Orwell to drive home the point that, you know, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. Um, and we knew that all along. We knew that as soon as this law was going through the legislature and our legislative and policy team tried to challenge it. And, you know, fire's long been criticized by the left and uh, ad admired by the right for our defense of conservatives like Ann Coulter to speak on college campuses. So it's funny when on, you know, one moment you're described as amazing and principled because you're advocating against my mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for college faculty. And then the next on Twitter, you're called by Chris Rufo, a quote, woke enabler that lets DEI mm -hmm. admins operate with impunity because you oppose things like the Stop Woke Act. You know, you can't win. But one, one thing that's really important to point out about the Stop Woke Act and what it's trying to do is that it's trying to appeal to the same language or justifications for speech suppression that the critical race theories theorists did. You know, in a striking passage from Florida's legal brief uh, opposing our motion for a preliminary injunction, it says, and I'm quoting them here, even if the First Amendment did apply here, and it's arguing that it didn't, Florida's compelling interest in stamping out discrimination based on race and other immutable characteristics amply justifies any burden on speech the act may oppose. So it's saying censorship is is necessary in order to scramp out discrimination based on race. What does that sound like? It sounds like every motivation um, by the political left and critical race theorists to censor in higher education over the past three decades. Uh, and now Florida is so, using it to justify censorship. So I'm not extremely familiar with this act. I haven't read it. I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's any discussion. It's not just, you know, professor advocating the point of view that, uh, you know, white people should feel guilty. It's any discussion of the concept well, here's that, what it says, because uh, and it's a point, yeah. and it's important to point it out. It says it shall constitute discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, or sex under this section to subject any student or employee to training or instruction that espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels such student or employee to believe any of the following concepts. So yeah, compels is in there, but that's one of the ways in which it's trying to regulate it. It even says it put giving them uh, instruction or training that espouses those viewpoints, right? I'm, I'm, I'm presented with all sorts of ideas uh, all the time, and, and students are too, uh, that are, are silly or discriminatory. So, but, but, if, 
but if, if, if I if I say not to get Jesuitical on you, you know, oh, there there are these. Um, I'm an instructor, and there are these uh, folks who believe in critical race theory, and, and you know, Derek Bell and others, and and they said, you know, racism is fused in our society, and uh, uh, if you're a white person, you you can't escape it, and and you're part of this structure. Is that espousing? Is, is there a distinction to be made between just discussing and espousing, or is just just all, all those words are subject to such a broad interpretation that um, um, they, they all basically mean that you're just bringing this stuff up, you're going to potentially get in trouble? Well, yeah, I mean, and and some and some schools have even said as much that the latter can get you in trouble. I mean, all all you need to do is really look at the animation for the the animating kind of theory of the lawsuit. The bill sponsor. Um, Rep. Brian Avila identified five obviously egregious books, in his words. Uh, these are books, articles, and videos uh, that led to the bill's introduction. You know, he he wanted to ban things like a, a 1989 Atlantic article dealing with race and and the pandemic, uh, or I should say, mm-hmm. a, a 1989 article about white privilege. He also wanted to ban a separate article in the Atlantic dealing with race and the pandemic. He wanted to ban Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, which. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as any of your listeners or myself might disagree with that book, that is an animating viewpoint of a lot of right. the calls for censorship right now. And the best way to rebut them is to kind of engage with them on their own merits and understand the arguments. So the idea, you know, at least according to the bill's sponsor here, that that shouldn't be allowed to be introduced as a topic for discussion uh, mm-hmm. in a college education runs contrary to what a college education should be. So, yeah, and, I mean, and the, then- the, the law is honest, is, is stayed pending the outcome of our litigation. Um, but, you know, we, we've opposed DEI efforts that compel speech in other contexts as well. Right. So just f- final uh, query on this one. Is there any, um, what's the distinction between public and private um, colleges and, and universities? And what is there, you know, you obviously <clears throat> schools, um, you know, sh- should have a curriculum and, and you know, Things that are being hit and not hit. Is there a um, a distinction as well between how um, heavy-handed or how influential public authorities can be in setting what what's what's taught at K through twelve level as opposed to the collegiate level? Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of have two questions there about public and private. Yeah, sure. um, you're, and, you're always uh, picking up on my two-part questions. I'm always trying to masquerade them as just one question, but you disaggregate uh, <laughs> them on me. Well, I went, yeah, to, I, went, I went to journalism school, for better or worse, and it taught us to avoid compound questions. So uh, I'm happy to – I'm always happy to call out the uh, editor-in-chief of National yeah. Review when he uses them. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, I mean, the in K-12 through environment, this is state-mandated, compelled education. Uh, and if, if we want to continue it, to be that way, the state is going to have involvement in setting curricula. Um, and, and so your first amendment claims, your academic freedom claims aren't going to go as far in that, in that environment as they will in higher education. Now in higher education, you have public and private universities, right? And I should say in K through 12 private schools, you know, you have accreditation for curricula, um, but you don't have the same level of state involvement. But at colleges and universities, public colleges are bound by the First Amendment. And as such, they are government actors who are forbidden from abridging freedom of speech and its corollary academic freedom. However, private colleges are under no such obligation, right? They have the First Amendment right to associate around whatever values they wish. Now, 
a lot of them, most of them, in fact, promise free speech and academic freedom because you need to promise those sorts of things in order to retain and recruit the best students mm -hmm. and faculty. Um, but they don't have to. They can associate around a separate set of values. And what's important for FIRE is what they say those values are. So if you're a religious school like Georgetown University um, that also promises freedom of expression, we will hold you to those promises. And in fact, uh, there is a legal contractual argument for colleges and universities having to uh, uphold those. You know, We just saw what happened earlier this year with Ilya Shapiro right? Tweeting about a Supreme yep. Court nomination and and essentially almost losing his job. Um, we provided him with uh, a lawyer to kind of help fight back against that. But at the end of the day, he decided, and he, after he was his rights were vindicated, he decided to go, I think he's at the Manhattan Institute um, now. But there are some schools that don't say anything about freedom of expression. It's caveat emptor, buyer beware. Uh, Brigham Young University, for example, is one of those schools. The United States Military and Naval Academies are those schools. Hillsdale College is one of those schools. So we give those schools a warning label, say, beware, you're attending these schools. They do not promise, at least in their policies, uh, free expression rights. But there are some colleges, po uh, private colleges, for example, in the state of California that are bound by First Amendment standards through something called the Leonard Law. Uh, which applies First Amendment standards to public uh, to private colleges and universities, and in fact, Stanford adopted a hate speech code in the 1990s that was struck down by a federal court, or maybe it, no, it was a state court um, over there. Um, and so, in that case, First Amendment standards were applied to a a private school, but for most of the country, that's not the case. So, uh, on hate speech, another aspect of this debate, you know, we've had these horrific, you know, ongoing. Massacres, obviously, uh, sh shootings, and very often you'll hear, hear the argument afterwards. We heard a, a lot of this after the terrible attack on Paul Pelosi. That look, you know, the, the negative ads about Nancy Pelosi, attacks on Nancy Pelosi, caused this. And you know, usually the, people are not saying this should be illegal or banned, but they are they are saying uh, that there is uh, the kinds of speech that do. If not, you know, if the words aren't themselves, violence do lead to violence. How, how do you think of that aspect of this discussion and argument? Well, I should say, actually, there are some uh, politicians who are finding ways to ban words. So, for example, on December 1st, we filed a lawsuit against the state of New York, which uh, has a new law mm -hmm. that says Internet platforms of all stripes and actually National Review might be covered under this law. You might want to look in that. But it requires them to publish a policy explaining how they will respond to online expression that could vilify, humiliate, or incite violence based on protected classes like religion, gender, or race. Uh, the law it also require, requires them requires them to publish policies explaining how they will respond to online expression that could vilify. I got I to gotta check this out, actually, if this does apply to us. <laughs> yeah, well, one of our plaintiffs in the case is Eugene Volok because he runs the Volok Conspiracy blog yeah. and he allows commenters. And so you, you're required to publish the policy explaining how you're responding to this hate speech uh, and then create a way for visitors to complain about hateful content or comments and mandates that you then answer those complaints with a direct response and refusal to comply can mean investigations from the attorney general's office, subpoenas, a daily fine of a thousand per violation. And the title for the law is, quote, social media networks, hateful conduct prohibited. 
So you know, again, I take umbrage with the uh, premise of the question that they're not actually trying to ban it because they are. Yeah. And this was part of uh, I, I, uh, Letitia I, I James. Uh, yeah. You, just, you might, just, might just have picked up another client during the course of this podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, am not, I am not a lawyer. I am not giving you legal advice, uh, <laughs> but you could certainly get in touch with our lawyers if you're interested. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is part of an enterprise by New York Attorney General Letitia James in response to the shooting in Buffalo. Um, they're also seeking to ban live streaming, or there was a recommendation and report in the wake of the Buffalo shooting to ban uh, live streaming because the shooter in that case live streamed in something like Facebook Live for like a minute uh, before Facebook was able to take it down. Um, but think about the downstream consequences of that. Twitch, which is a popular like live video game platform, wouldn't be able to operate in such an environment because it requires um, the audience to respond in real time. This isn't that you you know you can't have a tape delay in an environment like that like you might have on some network broadcasts. So you know they are trying and and this is this is what happened. You know, a lot of these politicians don't love hateful speech. There's certain speech that they don't want, um, and never let a good uh, a, a good controversy a, a good uh, why am I forgetting the name of the name of the word a good uh, tragedy so to speak, mm -hmm. go to, go to go waste. To and this is, the, this is the constant fight of civil libertarians across time memorial is to fighting back against the instinct once tragedy strikes to censor or to restrict civil liberties. Um, so, I, you know, uh, this is just another example of us trying to do that. So Nico, thanks so much. And especially our thanks goes out to your wife providing <laughs> you so much room to prepare for this podcast. Cause I'm sure it would have not nearly been as good without all that preparation. Well, I, I, wa I walk, yeah, of course I walk down the stairs, uh, in the morning as my wife is preparing breakfast for our son and I hear your voice quite regularly. Um, and I should say, <laughs> so actually, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's uh, no, it's okay. Uh, she's a big fan. Um, but I, I should say as well, you have on staff, in my opinion, one of the most eloquent defenders of free expression in America right now in the form of Charlie Cook. I mean, anything he writes about these issues is essential reading. Uh, so kudos to that. Uh, I hope he continues to write on these issues because they're helpful. Here, here. Thanks so much, Nico. Thanks, Rich. So that's it for us. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks again to Nico and thefire.org. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.